This episode is brought to you by the new novel A Slice of Mars by longtime Geek's Guide to the Galaxy listener Gary Cachet. A Slice of Mars presents an optimistic vision of life on Mars and explores the day-to-day lives of regular people living in a future in which the workplace, the family, and adult friendships have all been radically changed by future technologies and speculative cultural shifts. Inspired by the speculative societies of books such as Infomocracy and The Left Hand of Darkness, A Slice of Mars explores topics such as transhumanism, biodiversity, automation, and universal basic income. And here's a description of the book. It says, Mars is a strange place these days. Corporate overlords, capitalism, and even aging are things of the past, on a planet increasingly brimming with biodiversity, yet pizzerias are in short supply. Siblings Het and San set out to change that, but a roboticist and a bureaucrat can't run a restaurant alone, so they bring on some help, a bioengineer, a communication scientist, and an unlikely grad student from Earth. Together, this gang of geeks will brave the fires of small business. But work is just a small part of life. People are complicated. Different brains, different wounds, different values, and one questionably tame wildcat will all collide as they try to grow and succeed together. What comes out of the oven in the end is anyone's guess. Perfect for fans of Legends and Lattes, the Wayfarer series, and the Cemeteries of Amalo, A Slice of Mars is the low-stakes, high-tech novel you've been looking for. So again, the author is Garrick Hache, so that's Garrick, G-U-E-R-R-I-C, Hache, H-A-C-H-E, and the book is called A Slice of Mars. Alright, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 536 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm David Barr Kirtley, author of the book Save Me Please and Other Stories, which is available now on Amazon.com. We had a great conversation about the book back in episode 500, so definitely check that out if you missed it. And today on the show, we'll be discussing season one of the Netflix series Arcane, a spinoff of the popular computer game League of Legends. And this will involve spoilers for everything in the show, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Erin Lindsay, making her 35th appearance on the show. She's the author of the Bloodbound series of epic fantasy novels and the Rose Gallagher series of paranormal historical mystery novels. Her latest Rose Gallagher book, The Silver Shooter, is out now. So, Erin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. The next up, we've got Zach Chapman, making his 13th appearance on the show. His short fiction appears in Nature, Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Steampunk Universe, and Writers of the Future. And he also edited the book Time Travel Tales, which includes stories by Catherine Wells, Sean Williams, and Robert Silverberg. His retro horror comic House of Blood Volume 1 is available now on Indiegogo. So, Zach, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. And also joining us today is Lara Elena Donnelly, making her fifth appearance on the show. She's the author of the Amberlow Dossier Trilogy and Jim Henson's Labyrinth Masquerade from Boom Comics. Her short fiction has appeared in Strange Horizons, Escape Pod, and Nightmare, and her new novel, Base Notes, a psychological thriller about a perfume maker, is out now. So, Lara, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. At five episodes, I feel like such a newbie. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, just 30 more to go. (laughs) (laughs) It'll happen sooner than you think. Um, All right. But actually, so let's start off with Aaron. And have you tell us about how you first discovered the show Arcane? Oh, wow. You know, I wish I could remember better than I do. I think um, it was largely a fluke. Um, I, it's, it's a while ago now, but it seems to me it was just stumbling across it in my timeline that from a bunch of independent sources, people were raving about this show that I'd never heard of. Um, and you know, that's maybe one of the, the few things social media is actually good at because I would never have chosen it myself. Um, you know, we did the, we did the Castlevania panel together and that was a show that, that I liked, um, despite the fact that I don't generally watch anime, um, and, and this falls into that category too. I'm a little surprised actually that Netflix didn't, um, pop it up through the algorithm because we had watched Castlevania, but it didn't. Um, or if it did, I didn't notice it anyway. So it just, I really fluked upon it. I am not familiar with the video game series. Um, surprisingly. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, you know, there, there were just, there was no reason for me to check it out other than the enthusiasm on social media from voices that I respected. Yeah, I guess I'll explain that. So uh, Zach and Aaron and I have have watched for this podcast an incredible number of video game adaptation things, mm-hmm. more than any human mind really should have to. <laughs> Another more than thing any that sane have, person. <laughs> another thing that I have to catch up on now. <laughs> the, the top of the list is uh, Double Dragon. Um, <laughs> and that's asterisk. not a joke. <laughs> That's not a joke. <laughs> yeah, there's there's some some uh, divergences of opinion on uh, Double Dragon, <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh, no. But Zach Zach legitimately loves it. He he hasn't stopped talking about it. But <laughs> but yeah. So so this is yeah. So so the three of us have watched a ton of these video game video game adaptations, and I think we all kind of got burned out on them. Uh, I was thinking of doing doing one because there have been a bunch that have come out since our last one. I made a little list here. Monster Hunter, Mortal Kombat 2021, <laughs> Werewolves Within, Resident Evil, Welcome to Raccoon City, and Uncharted. I was kind of tempted to do a panel on those, but... The Last of Us, man. I was going to say, are you going to do well, The Last of Us? Oh, we definitely will do The Filmed in my hometown. Really enjoying seeing my hometown as a post-apocalyptic wasteland. <laughs> okay, but we're not we're not going to talk about that until season one is, is done. So <laughs> sure. just erase it from from your mind. Um, but yeah, but so there was, there have been a lot of bad video game adaptations. So, uh, you know, the thought of watching another one was not necessarily super enticing. Um, and, but so, so Zach is, do you, do you agree with all that? How do you, how do you feel? How did you feel about Arcane? Oh, as far as an adaptation, I'm very unfamiliar with the source material. Like I, I don't really care about MOBAs. I'm kind of. They don't have any appeal to me. I'm a gamer, but MOBAs are not something that appeals to me. But uh, yeah, it's it's all, it's definitely at the top of the list. I mean, it doesn't beat Double Dragon, but <laughs> <laughs> but I'm loving this, and I'm I'm sure maybe opinions will change once the full season of The Last of Us is out. But this is pretty incredible. I know we we will get into like little nitpicky things. To, but I will say, like, I just wholeheartedly love this show. I think it's a masterpiece. I'll say some negative things about it, but like, yeah, at the absolute top of the list, 
for it, for shows in general for me, but especially for video game shows because uh, the competition is not very great. Yeah, well, well, to give people an idea, if you haven't seen the show, is currently a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and I think the last time we did a video game panel, the highest was like I don't know seventy two or something like that. I mean, so uh, yeah, this is like way way you know, head and shoulders above any of the other video game adaptations that we've talked about. I, I um, would say, I would say that that's one of the things that's holding, holding it back for me is that it is an adaptation. Cause I, there were, we will get into it later, but there were parts where I was like, well, Oh, this is where it's like, if they weren't adapting it from some material, this character would just be dead or this character <laughs> I know isn't going to die or these characters can die because they're not, you know, quote unquote champions that you're, you can play as. So, or this character wouldn't be a Mogwai. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) For no reason. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, Heimerdinger. Yeah. (laughs) Well, anyways, that that made me, wait, 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 before we get into, before we get into that, let me just say, because, um, you know, I, I thought what you were going to say, it being a video game show holding it back is it was interesting to me that every other video game thing that we've talked about that I can think of the show is just called the same name as the game you know Mm -hmm. Super Mario Brothers or Sonic the Hedgehog or Resident Evil or whatever and this is called Arcane rather than League of Legends and that was a I mean it's called I guess Arcane colon League of Legends but it was interesting it was an interesting choice to me that it wasn't just called League of Legends this show and I'm just curious uh I'd be curious to hear what people think think of that. Actually, I want to get um, Lara in here too, though, because um, Lara, <laughs> I really wanted you for this panel because I was trying to think like who would be good to talk about this, and and your name just popped into my head. I'm like, oh man, I bet Lara. Oh, I, you're show. right because I have a lot of feelings and thoughts about this show. But uh, so you asked Erin how she first heard about this, and I was like, but I want to answer that question. <laughs> okay, yeah, go for it. The way that I heard about it was that I was on Tumblr and I saw this gift set that I thought for like a significant amount of time, I was looking at it being like, this is the most incredible fan made like piece of animation that I have ever seen for Gideon the Ninth. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was a Gideon the Ninth fan work because it was like Kate and Vi, uh, like down in the undercity, obviously flirting with each other. But I had never heard of the show before. Like, I didn't even know that it existed at all. And so I had just no idea what I was looking at, which I feel like is the experience of discovering a lot of things on Tumblr, where you're like, what an amazing gift set. What is it from? And then you have to trawl back through like 10,000 reblogs to try to figure (laughs) out what you're looking at. And then I found out it was this show. And I was like, this is a whole animated TV show aimed at like an adult audience And I've never heard of it. And I am someone who will talk your ear off about how I wish that there was more media aimed at adults that was like animated, um, whether that's like computer animation or 2D cell animation. I think it's like an incredible medium to tell stories through. Um, And so when I saw this, I was just like, I must watch it. And then I binged yeah. the whole thing in like two days. Um, when also just kind of the steampunk thing and the sort of art deco look oh, of the title yes, and stuff yes, was all really yeah. reminds me of your, yes, like I said, and your aesthetic. When I finished watching it, I was like, how do I get Fortiche to turn the Amberlo dossier into <laughs> a TV series? Because <laughs> it's something like I've always kind of thought it would make a great 
piece of animation because it's so like richly visual. And then to see them basically like put this whole world together that is all like art deco. It's, the amazing thing too is that it shifts from nouveau to deco in like yeah. episode four. Um, and it is like so amazing. It's like deco neon. I don't know. It's just the aesthetics are incredible. Uh, it's beautiful to look at, even if you don't care what is going on. Yeah. Um, but so let's let's come back to my thing about why is it called Arcane rather than League of Legends? Be- and it may just be because, I mean, League of Legends, we should say, is one of the most popular games out there. I mean, you know, millions of players, like big, you know, arena filling esports events and all these things. But still, I mean, it seems like nobody I personally know has actually played it. And everyone who recommended the show to me said, I haven't played League of Legends and you don't need to watch League of Legends to, or you don't need to uh, have played League of Legends to understand the show. So I don't know. I'm just curious, uh, uh, Aaron, what do you think about that? About that idea? I mean, I think it's, it's uh, probably, if I had to guess, a, a question of hedging their bets in the sense that, you know, they've got League of Legends in the title so they can capitalize on the IP, but by calling it arcane, they're maybe hoping to split the difference between people who will rightly um, because of a long history that we've already discussed, will look at it as uh, a video game adaptation and roll their eyes and say, I don't want to watch that. And so maybe yeah. by calling it arcane, they're, they're A, signaling that there's more to this than just a sort of two-dimensional adaptation of a Mortal Kombat type game. I mean, I assume that's what it is. I actually don't even know anything about that game. But Isn't there, it there's tower defense? That I'll, I don't know nothing either, but I, has, I have heard it's like a tower defense game. Hmm. Yeah. Well, how about Zach? Do you want to explain? You use the you use the term MOBA. Um, <laughs> oh man. Uh, so wow. Yeah, I'm not the person to explain this, but I think based off of what you guys are saying, maybe of us, I can explain it a little <laughs> bit better. I mean, uh, I, I researched it yesterday, so I it, could jump. I could you could tag me in. If it's you basically like an RTS, but instead of controlling (laughs) uh, sorry it's like a real-time strategy game but it's a little bit more actiony so it's a strategic uh arena where you're battling i think they may have objectives um all right i'm uh, gonna tag in here yeah (laughs) so so yeah so it's it it started out as a mod for warcraft 3 so in warcraft 3 you're looking down on the map and you're controlling there's you know two or more players and they each control an army and then people made a mod of Warcraft 3. Um, the first big one was called Dota. It stands for Defense of the Ancients. And it's a MOBA, which stands for Multiplayer Online Battle Arena. But so in these, rather than each player controlling an army, each player controls one champion who's one, you know, one character who has all sorts of cool abilities. And then you have a whole team of people that you're playing with. And so then there's two teams fighting against each other with multiple players on each team and the goal and you're on this map with like forests and little castles and stuff like that and and monsters um and your goal is to destroy the other team's base uh and prevent them simultaneously from destroying your base so so that's what a MOBA is, Ooh. and that's the type of game that mm. League of Legends is. That's actually helpful uh, for understanding the sort of overall story arc that we're looking at here in, the, in the most general that. sense. Yeah, it's like that explains kind of the like city versus city yeah. situation. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and, and so the, the story of the show is is not related to the like game the, the gameplay. You know, there's not like teams of 
players trying to destroy the other team's base in the show or whatever. But there what might they did be, for the <laughs> well, maybe in season two. But what they did for the you know for the game, they had had all this lore that they had created. So each character has you know like like co- different costumes and a personality and little lines of dialogue and stuff. And so they had made up this lore of like, oh, this character studied at the academy or like whatever. Um, but then when it came time to make this show and the show was developed internally at Riot Games, you know, people who would, who were like full-time employees of the studio, uh, came up with the idea and, and, you know, were the showrunners and script writers. I mean, they ultimately, they recruited more people, but you know, it's not like they farmed it out to some, you know, I mean, the, the animation was done by this French studio called Studio Fortiche, but, uh, it was like people at Riot who got everything rolling. And we're very involved creatively. Um, oh, Zach, we're going to jump in. There? Yeah, I I feel like what that that whole bit that you said is extremely unique and extremely like it just doesn't happen. Like, uh, like even Edge Runners, which is good, doesn't it, it's farmed out anime. Um, even though like the creators are all involved. I feel like the amount of like back and forth between these two teams is like they're they're working together constantly because you don't see this kind of animation anywhere else. It's very very unique. Um these these Netflix shows like they they just did a a Junji Ito adaptation and it's like the studio that they got to do it is just clearly not a fan of the work or probably don't care. It's just farmed out. So to me, that was like a bit that's like, well, that makes sense. Like they, there's no way that you could create a product that looks and feels like this by just farming it out to who, to whatever studio. It has to be a lot of internal people that created, you know, the IP or whatever, like riot. Um, Anyways, that was my take yeah. on it. Yeah, there, there's actually, if you go on YouTube, there's a YouTube series called Arcane Bridging the Rift about the making of. And it's actually, it's really, really good if you're curious to learn more about the personalities at, at Riot Games who made the show and stuff. Um, that's really, it's really good. But yeah, so I mean, that's just one thing to say is that the people who made the show, like just love these characters and love these love this game and have worked on it for years and years. And so, yeah, it isn't like, like Zach saying, it's not just something that they... Uh, you know, subcontracted out to a to a studio who maybe didn't know or care that much about the uh, about the IP. Um, but so so Zach was mentioning there the how amazing the animation is. So Lara, what do you think? Uh, what was what, what were kind of your initial impressions of the the visual look of the show? I mean, I think that it is super beautiful. A, a thing that I noticed though is that it feels a little like when you're reading a comic book and some panels obviously were like these labors of love and people took a lot of time on them. And then like other panels <laughs> are like, Oh, they were really crunching up against their deadline there. Uh, like there are definitely some scenes where the animation feels like a little, a little like weightless in a way that I think people are kind of used to 3d computer animation looking um, but then some of the scenes, so the ones that really, really stood out to me are the fight scenes. 
And I haven't looked into this at all, but I'm really curious whether they had like a fight choreographer and they like worked these out with real people. And if it was like motion capture or if the animators just like used reference, because the fight scenes are so incredibly choreographed and like so incredibly fluid and, and the like weight behind the punches feels really real. Like the physicality of the characters is incredible. And some of the micro expressions, like the facial micro expressions make it feel like you're watching acting. And and in a sense you are like, I, I saw, I can't remember if it was a YouTube video or like, I don't know, probably an Instagram reel of like the animators from arcane acting out the scenes that they were animating to like use themselves and their colleagues as references. And that was really interesting. But like that to me is some of the strongest animation in the show is when you get a close up on the face of this like illustrated character and they are making a face that feels like, like the real kind of micro expression that people make when, when they're acting in a film, it's just really (laughs) incredible. It's yeah. Well, let me say. Let me say. I just know from the um, from this YouTube thing, there was no mocap. Mo- there's no motion yeah, capture in this at all. Yeah, that's phenomenal. Was, uh, that's like insane to me. It just yeah, to, this, sorry, to, Aaron. Go ahead. Yeah, to jump in on that, it's not just that 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 these are animated characters. It's they're heavily stylized animated characters, mm. and and heavily stylized is not always a thing I go for. Um, but it just really works for this, it, and it's incredible to me that you can have these heavily stylized facial features that still manage to convey emotion in such a nuanced and, and accurate way. But the other thing, just to go back to what you're saying about the fight scenes, for me, it's not just the fight scenes, but the motion scenes in general. This is such kinetic animation. You really feel the, 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 the motion and the dimension. Uh, they play with focus and like camera swings, almost as if it's being filmed with a hand cam. Like one of those opening scenes where Vi and the, the Brat Pack are basically, you know, parkouring through the city um, over the rooftops. There's just so much kinetic energy and and you you feel as though you're there tumbling along with them. And it's just, it's incredible how they've done it. There's another thing I want to mention about the, in this uh, YouTube documentary, they ask, because so so the look of the show, uh, if you haven't watched it, uh, it's it's obviously computer generated characters, but then it looks hand, the whole thing looks hand painted. And so, so the interviewer asks one of the animators, how do you make it look hand painted? And she says, well, we paint it. <laughs> so basically, <laughs> you know, I think basically they, the, the, how it works, as I understand is that they, they computer generate every frame and then somebody, you know, or teams of people go through and hand, you know, paint over every frame, God. you know, mm. well, uh, to me, it, it looked like some of the, ha- some of the frames were like some of the backgrounds are hand painted. And then some of the textures on the 3D faces, like the characters, were hand-painted. That's kind of the sense that I got. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and no, I think that's basically right. I mean, I, I totally agree, though, about the fight scenes. I mean, just I, I watch a lot of, like, street fight videos on YouTube. It's one of my hobbies. Uh, <laughs> and okay. Like, the, okay. the, fight, the fights in this really, really, they, they, they look really realistic. I mean, like the, um, or like the, you know, the... The way you know that they, they pick each other up and slam them, uh, slam them on the ground, and shove them against walls, and like all the stuff you see in, in real street fights. So you know, I, it was that was really well done. Well, and you see um, the exhaustion come over them at the right yeah. moments. Like it's not like they're getting into these twenty minute 
we're looking at you, Avatar, 30 minute <laughs> fist fights where nobody gets tired. It's, you know, they, you can see that they get tired very quickly. You get the sense that they're in pain. They start to sag. Like it's just, it's very realistic. There's one thing we were talking about, uh, the design of the show. And I wanted to talk about the, the characters designs themselves. And that to me, it, all of the characters, it's, it's very clear that they're designed by a video game company. Mm. Um, a lot of the characters look like Activision characters. It looks like, um, like Jinx to me looks like Junkrat. And I know she, she, I'm pretty sure she came before Junkrat. Um, and, I, I forget the boy savior. Uh, I forget that character's name, but he looks Jace? and kind of acts like DJ. Uh, no, not, not oh, Jace. Oh, Echo. The, you mean the kid? Echo. Yeah. Echo. Yeah. And he even like DJ's like power in, um, uh, in Overwatch is like green and like, I don't know that it just, a lot of the, the tropes in, in design itself kind of reflect they're reflective of like game design characters and not anime or animation style characters. And that's, I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing, but it's like, you just start picking up on like the similarities between like an insane junk rat and an insane jinx. And they just kind of seem like they have a lot of similar DNA to me. What's wild to me about the style here is like, yes, the characters often look a lot like video game characters, but then the style of the show overall, like there were moments where it's like, oh, this is like a still from a like a Studio Ghibli movie or like this looks like a Dragon Ball Z fight. Like stylistically, it's so clear that they're drawing on like both like video game aesthetic, but also like there's a lot of sort of like Japanese animation making its way in there. But then there's also stuff that looks like a gorilla's music video. Yes, like, I definitely had that. Like, yeah. Like every every animated uh like property from the last like twenty years is like making its way into this show. Well I think that this studio, from what I understand, they did some of the gorillas. Yeah, stuff. yeah, they totally yeah, did. Yeah, you can um, you can tell. <laughs> so like I think a lot of it is like, like that other people have copied them rather than that that they're copying other people. I mean, I don't know all the ins and outs, but that's that was sort of the sense I got. But the um, other thing that's interesting about that is how all of that occurs against a backdrop. Like you, I mean, I could talk about the design all day long. I mean, we talked a little bit of the architecture. It's basically to me, it's like steampunk Paris um, in the nouveau parts and steampunk New York um, in the art deco parts and just really beautiful. The fashions and the jewelry and just really creative in terms of, you know, what people are wearing as far as makeup and clothing and, and all of that sort of thing. Um, and how sort of that telegraphs their, their station in life. Um, yeah. The sound effects. Um, I mm. thought we, we talked when we did the, uh, his dark materials panel about the really satisfying sound effects of the alethiometer. And I mm. found some of these steampunk toys and the hex gates and stuff had a similar, like extremely satisfying sound effects. Like, I just think there's a beauty to the design that goes down to a very uh, minute level of detail. That's just really impressive. Uh, yeah. There is this character uh, in, in not even like a half a scene in episode five, where there's a, like a street vendor scene. That's like, he's like this shark looking street vendor and he gives Vi like some food 
and some like Intel. And the design of that character has more personality than any of the designs in like Zeus blood of gods, for example, it's like he's in one scene and he looks amazing. He looks so cool. I feel like this show really excels with, like, secondary and even more especially tertiary characters. Like, there's a scene where Vi is, like, not Vi, uh, where Kate is, like, hanging out with a bunch of other enforcers. And they're all, like, on their smoke break. And they're having, like, some stupid conversation. And, like, one of them is, like, spitting. And they're all slouched around. And the just, like, her coworkers have so much personality and so much, like, they feel like real people hanging out, having this smoke break, and they never come back. I think they actually die very yes, swiftly. They're, they're, all, they're all brutally murdered is yeah. why they never come back. <laughs> let me just, let me, before I go any farther, let me just explain the basic story. So, so yeah, we're in this kind of steampunk world with magic. And at some point in the past, like, I don't know, 100 years ago or something, um, there there was some big magical cataclysm or something. And so this city of Piltover was founded as a reaction to that. And then they're like, we're going to be the city of science and enlightenment. And we're going to, um, you know, reject magic. And so this has been going on fine for a while. Um, except now the, um, the, the society is very, has become very stratified. And so the, the wealthy people live in this, in the upper sections of the city where everything's all sunny and, uh, gardens and marble and stuff like that. And then the poor people live down in the undercity where it's all like toxic waste and, you know, uh, polluted air and, uh, mutations and garbage and stuff like that, graffiti. And so, um, at some, about, what, about 10 years or so before the story starts? Uh, this guy Vander led a revolt of the Undercity against the Piltover, and they were brutally, you know, violently put down. This re- revolt was violently put down. And um, our main characters are Violet and uh, Powder slash Jinx, whose parents were killed in this revolt. And Vander kind of adopted them, and they've become, and they've sort of grown up as sort of wild uh street rats you know urchin yeah type characters and so when i first started watching this i mean i was really blown away by the animation and initially like the story was good but i felt like it was maybe kind of familiar it sort of reminded me of Mm -hmm. aladdin or like a lot of other animated shows i've seen and um i wasn't totally in until episode three (laughs) which takes an incredible I want to talk turn. about episode 3. Yeah, episode 3. <laughs> totally. Episode 3. Yeah. It's like a season finale did, did and it's only episode happen? 3. <laughs> Holy shit. I'm, I'm watching it and rewatching it right now. I was supposed to finish it before we started recording this podcast, but you know how life is. But uh I started a rewatch and my partner's watching it with me and he's like a screenwriter and does a lot of like movie and TV watching and analysis. And he was like, no, this is actually, it's perfect because there are nine episodes and this is the end of act one, right? If it's a three act structure, like, of course, this insane thing is going to happen because everything has to change after this. And indeed, everything changes after this. It's almost Shakespearean. It's like, this couldn't possibly have been more bad 
And not only is it bad, <laughs> it's like ironic bad. So it hurts more where you're like, oh my God, we were so close to this not being really, really, really terrible. But instead, because we were so close, it's like 10 times worse. And it breaks television taboos. And so in, in so doing, it's it's shocking. It's legitimately shocking. I was legitimately shocked that they went there. And, and we. I have a lot to say about that episode. I think we're allowed to spoil things. So I feel like yeah. we're allowed to say what happens. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll just give a quick capsule. So basically, like a bunch of kids die. Uh, uh, the two sisters have a huge falling out. And the younger one is adopted by this crime ward. Uh, and um, their um, father figure, Vander, uh, becomes a giant uh, purple mutant killer <laughs> machine and also and then dies. apparently dies. Uh, but they don't so, just die. Uh, they die on screen. Yeah. And they these kids die on screen and zero punches pulled in it. And... What I one of the real achievements I think it, it, that I didn't even necessarily notice until up that up to that moment is you are legitimately invested in these characters when they die. Um, at least I was. Oh, for sure, and I think yeah, also like 100%. we're we're skipping the part that makes it like so deeply upsetting, which is that yeah. the person responsible for all of the terrible death and mayhem is the littlest child, who is like I can help. And then instead <laughs> yeah. literally kills everyone on and it's, accident. Yeah. It's the origin story of her of of her becoming a villain. And yeah, it's just it's so incredibly effective. And I just remember sitting there thinking, I I can't believe they did that. I mean, it's a ballsy move. Yeah. And and so for me, that episode three, I mean, I liked a lot of the rest of the show, but that for me was a high point that the show never I uh, I was right about to say that. It never yeah. and and I think that that is because it's an adaptation and it killed off the character. It killed off the non-champion characters um, or a lot of them in that. And then, you know, then you have your, your main characters for the rest of the season who are pretty much not touchable because, um, and I'm not saying like, Oh, you have to kill characters to be dramatic, but it worked so well in episode three that in, you know, the neck, the subsequent episodes, when a character ends up not dying or whatever, you're just like, Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> no one, I, no one, no one dies now, I guess. Can I be a dissenting voice on that? Yeah. Yeah. For, for two reasons. One, um, I personally, because I don't know anything about league of legends, although I can sort of guess uh, who's part of the game and who isn't, um, I don't really have visibility on that. And so there was nobody who was automatically, you know, ticked safe, uh, yeah. the box ticked for safe for me. Um, and secondly, for me, I think that the, the finale and that final scene of the <gasps> finale comes quite close. It has a lot of the same resonance and bitter irony to it. Um, and I think it had a lot of dramatic impact. Yeah, and it, and it did absolutely left me questioning who makes it out alive. I, I legit don't know. No, I, I love to the finale. I mean, that was like, that was close to the third episode for me, but not quite as, as much. But that was definitely, you know, that was right up there for sure. Yeah, I do feel like there are other ways in which it's sort of status as an adaptation. I and mean, I don't want to say that this is a fault 
inherent in adaptation because I think a lot of adaptations do make strong choices that sort of diverge from the source material. But this one made some choices that I think, so like Heimerdinger, who we brought up, who is the little weird mogwai creature. Ewok. Uh, uh, huh. <laughs> but inexplicable Ewok. He looks, like a little, he looks like a little anthropomorphic puppy. Yeah. So he, I was talking about this with my partner because we both find him so annoying. And he'll like come mm. in, his only job is to come into a scene and be like, you should do this thing. And then in the next scene, be like, don't do that thing that I told you to do because it would be unethical. And you're like, which is it, man? Do you want it or not? Like, what? Those are his only two jobs to, to like, Somebody inspire punt that or puppy. scold. Oh, he's so annoying. <laughs> and he has no purpose in the show. Like, we basically said, if you took him out of the show entirely, what would change about the story? And the answer mm. is, like, nothing. And so I think there are a couple of things about this, like, as an adaptation they were clearly kind of attached to like, well, we have to keep all of the video game characters in it, even if yeah. they're not really helping in any way. I agree and disagree. I totally agree. Like the whole him being a Mogwai thing drives me crazy. I think I would have reacted to the character much differently if he wasn't so, yeah, so much of like wicket running around telling you not to do things. Um, but that being said, I strongly suspect that he has an important role going forward. I, they're, they're brewing something with the Echo storyline there. I also feel like he wasn't he wasn't just ricocheting back and forth of do this, do that. To me, he's like what represents science is like science takes time. Like you you can't rush science. You should do it. You should do these things. You should try to save people, but you can't just like rush out uh, something and then people get hurt. And I think that, like, I liked that part of him. I mean, his character design is, like, whatever. But I totally get, like, hey, we want to save people, but, like, how how fast can we do it? And for him, it's like, well, who cares? He, like, lives, like, a thousand years. So time doesn't, you know, he can, um, he can wait it out. But there are, like, you know, 10 years to a human is a huge amount of time. So I, I didn't hate him as much. I was going to save this for later, but but since it came up, um, because because I watched this a couple months ago, and then I rewatched it for for this panel, and then I was realizing as I was getting ready to rewatch it that I was really excited to rewatch the parts with Violet and Jinx and mm. Silco, the crime lord, and um, Caitlin and all those characters, and I was sort of like feeling like it was going to be a bit of a slog to rewatch to rewatch the stuff with Jace and Victor and Heimerdinger um, and Mel. And I was trying to think why that why that is, um, and I think the sort of what I came up with I think is that the whole thing with Heimerdinger is that uh, he's he has no flaws, you know. He's telling them these experiments. So 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 Jace and Victor are these scientists, and they're doing these experiments to try to harness magic using science, which is sort of forbidden because the whole point of the city was supposed to be that we don't use magic, and so this is very um, controversial what they're doing. And so, so Heimerdinger, who's lived for hundreds of years and seen all these disasters in the past, is constantly telling them, this is dangerous, don't do this. And they're just like, F you, you know, we're going to do it anyway. And so there's, there's sort of not a lot of suspense in that storyline for me because it's so telegraphed that he's right. And it's so telegraphed that this is going to be a huge disaster. 
And so, so all the scenes where they're arguing about that stuff or agonizing it over it just kind of feel mm. like they're spinning. The story is spinning its wheels. And so, <laughs> so I think what should I think what it should be is that Heimerdinger should have should have more flaws. And I think it would be interesting if he's like you know because a lot of scientists. Um, you know, maybe he's really attached his position as the greatest scientist Piltover's ever seen and doesn't like the thought of a younger scientist coming along and uh, usurping his place there. And so he's been like taking credit for his work and, you know, undermining him in different ways and stuff professionally. And so then Jace would have a lot of personal reasons to to distrust Heimerdinger and, uh, you know, question his motives and the audience would as well. And then maybe it wouldn't seem so uh telegraphed or there inevitable. was what what happens i have uh, to say i experienced that storyline very differently from you okay go ahead sorry zach did you want to i i don't want to completely uh, oh, oh no, no no go go ahead i i want to talk about jace and that storyline but right after i go go for it <laughs> thank you uh i i definitely experienced that storyline differently and actually i think that's the heart of the show and i i liked it better than the the caitlin powder Jinx, uh, Silco storyline. Um, I think that the, the narrative thread running through that, the theme there is really experience versus naivety or experience versus inexperience. And I don't think that Heimerdinger comes across as being flawless. I, I don't have any objection to the idea that he also ha- should have more ego or whatever. Um, but I think they're playing the long game on that character. And I think he's going to have a lot of eye-opening experiences in season two as he spends more time in the Undercity. I didn't feel like they were telegraphing that he was right all the time. I think they were telegraphing. And I think that's one of the things that Victor's character hammers home really effectively. I think they're juxtaposing these two things. They're both right and they're both wrong. Jace is absolutely right to push the envelope And Heimerdinger is absolutely right to remind him of the potential catastrophic consequences of doing it. And it's very fair play for Jace to point out, look, we don't live forever. We need to address people are suffering now. He's absolutely right about that. And that perspective that Heimerdinger has is not, to me, quote unquote, right. I think they might have, you know, pitched the balance slightly better than they did. But I think that's one of the the central dilemmas. And you see it also between um, Mel and her mother. Her mother is the sort of the crusty experience and cynic saying, you know, you, you have to do it this way. And her daughter is holding on to this, this innocence of, of not, of not wanting to take a dark path and make the hard choices. And I, I think those two storylines for me are much more interesting, um, than people punching each other in the undersea. <laughs> Uh, no, I liked the punching. That's why I watched the street fight videos. So, <laughs> I like the punching so, so speaking of those arcs and punching and, and Jace in particular, uh, the only character arc that seemed weird to me was Jace's and just almost on a heel turn. They're mm-hmm. like, he's like, I am the golden scientist. I have uh, all these, uh, you know, all these ideas with the hex tech and everything. And then they're like, you need to be a cop. And he's like, yeah, I'm cool with that. I'm going to be a cop. On, like, in one episode, there was no arc for that. There should have been, like, two or three scenes of this character who's, you know, so committed to his science. And then having, oh, well, I'm going to be an enforcer with a hammer. Like, that seemed way too fast for me. As far as, like, all of the other like 
character arcs throughout the series are like slower. They feel really organic. If you pause any frame, like in this show, whoever is in the, whoever's in the scene is in the middle of a character arc that, that is probably internal. That's for sure internal. And then there's probably like someone at odds with that character, you know, that's like going to fight them or whatever externally. So there's like two little things that are going on at any scene. But then that was the one that felt weird or rushed to me. It's like, all right, scientist all right. to cop instant. All right. I want to get Lara back in here. So Lara, what do you think about what we've been saying? Okay. So I, as Aaron was talking about the sort of dynamics of the Heimerdinger science bros relationship and sort of the plot with the hex tech and the council, which is, Admittedly, a part of the show that I am a bit like, I'm all right, let's get back to the like weird, the weird, like undercity mafia drama. Um, But one of the parts of the show that I find the most compelling, which I have now been able to sort of connect to the Heimerdinger, Jason Victor, Malmedarda arc um, is, is Marcus, who becomes the sheriff, like the head of the enforcers after his boss Grayson dies. Um, and Grayson has like this RIP Grayson, RIP Grayson, you are a legend. (laughs) I actually just learned today reading Wikipedia that the woman who does her voice, uh, made her film debut in chess of the wind, which is like this extremely weird and beautiful Iranian film that we went to go see a while ago. (laughs) And I was like, whoa, weird. Grayson was in chess of the wind. This is unrelated to what, what I want to talk about, though. <laughs> well, she, she, she's also from The Expanse. She, she gets a lot the, of work. Yeah, she's done a lot of stuff. But the fact that she debuted in this very weird movie uh, was very pleasing to me. But so she has this deal with Vander, the sort of boss of the Undercity back in the good days, where she's like, we'll keep the peace by having like a little deal together where the enforcers won't come down too hard on the Undercity as long as the Undercity doesn't cause too much trouble. And her second in command, Marcus, has a really hard time with this. He's like, why can't we just like take him? Right. Which is sort of the vibe that the kids all have with Vander. And like some of the other Undercity people are like, why can't we just go at the people in Piltover? And Grayson and Vander are like, you don't understand because you're not in this position. And after Grayson dies and Marcus makes his like, he makes his own deal with the new king of the Undercity. So it's like Marcus and Silco now have this understanding. And Marcus, there's a scene where Marcus has to go in front of Jace after Jace becomes a counselor. That is an echo to a scene where Marcus and Grayson had to go in front of the council and like explain their failings. And Marcus was so mad and so embarrassed that they were explaining their failings. And he was like, oh, if I were in charge, you can feel him being like, if I were in charge, it wouldn't be like this. And then later when he is in charge, it's exactly like that. Nothing has changed. He's still having to make excuses to the council to cover up for his deal with the Undercity. And it's like, this is a theme that you see all through the show is of people being like, if I, if I were in charge or like, if I had my way, I I would do it better. I would do it right. It wouldn't be like this. And then being put in a position where they are in charge and they do have that power and it's exactly the same. And it's like, oh, they finally understand how how it was for the person they were judging. Um, And hearing Aaron talk about the sort of give and take of like Heimerdinger being like, you don't understand because you didn't see what magic did. And Jace being like, you don't understand because you've lived for a gazillion years and like, we don't have that long. It's like 
they're unable to see it from each other's point of view. And I'm like, oh, that's that's totally congruent with the rest of the show. Absolutely. No, but if I was in charge of the show, it really would be better. <laughs> um, it's absolutely that innocence versus experience plays out in that storyline with with Vander and uh, Grayson representing the experience and Marcus and Vi representing the, the innocence. Yeah. And it plays out also in the Silco storyline where he starts getting the young pup gangsters nipping at his heels because he's not doing it right and he's slipping and he's forgotten what it's like, blah, blah, blah. And he keeps holding meetings with all the other gangsters going, listen, pups, you either weren't here because you're too young or you've forgotten what it was like before we had the lanes. Are we talking so, about my favorite scene in the entire show, the good meeting scene? Yeah, the good meeting scene I is a great scene. That, scene. But it's one of two. And also the one where the follow-up to the good meeting scene where they come to his desk and and the the guy who keeps flipping the Zippo thinks that he's about to uh, stage a coup and ends up getting his head half cut yeah. off. But but Silco also has that in his storyline where he's like, you guys don't get it because you weren't here. And, and if you're in my position, which guess what? Now his second in command will be in his position because he didn't survive season one. So yeah, <laughs> I, there's a coherence to it that every single one of these storylines has that tug of war between innocence and experience that I really appreciate. Yeah, and, and it's so striking in animation because you know, like, I, like again, you watch the first two episodes and you think, like, oh, I've seen this before. It's like a, it's going to be the story of kids and coming of age and stuff like that. And then it's like it's that, but then it's there's like so many different characters with different ages and backgrounds and uh, outlooks and everything all, and and it, and the show canvases all of that so well and shows you so many different sides to to everything. Yeah, there are parts of it that almost feel like you're watching like a Scorsese cop movie where it's like no one is good. Everyone has their own agenda. Everyone thinks like their way is the best way and they're all trying to play each other. It has like a lot of sophisticated power dynamics uh, that that are very surprising in like an and, animated video game adaptation. And fully a, fleshed a bad, out agendas. Yeah. yeah, a bad uh, show would just have Silco like just be a bad guy but if you look at it from his perspective he he never betrays anyone he's like pretty stand up for all of the people he was he's just constantly being betrayed and so it's like all everything that he's doing is justified I mean, I don't know at the at the very end what he was gonna say like I don't I don't who knows maybe he he was he was put in a position where maybe betraying Jinx would have been very very attractive to save basically both sides on the on this war. Um, I mean, but he then, tells one well, he tells one woman he, he should have murdered her son if if he wasn't already dead. Her I little mean, kid. <laughs> but but like he he didn't kill her. He didn't he's, kill he's her a, son. He's a bad man, Zach. <laughs> I mean, no, he's honorable. I, I agree. <laughs> right. I agree with because. Well, well, because to, just to explain, so so what happens basically is that toward the end of the season, Jace, who's become a powerful political figure, goes to Silco, the crime boss, and says basically, "I'll give you everything you want, which is essentially independence um, for the for the Undercity, and all you have to do is turn over Jinx, his adopted daughter." And he he balks at this, and his last line, I think, he says something like to Jinx as he's as he's dying, I never she's would just have given mortally wounded you. him. <laughs> I never yeah, I never, 
And I totally 100% believe him. I mean, I think that's what's that's what's really interesting about his character is that he he does love Jinx. I mean, that's sort of his um, undoing ultimately but um i kind of think he he didn't know until he was dying and he only said it to her because he was dying and it was safe for him to say it i think he still hadn't made up his mind yeah maybe i mean he's definitely like he's not uh unadulterated evil but he he was he was irredeemable by the end but you know because i mean he was he was brutal and he made a lot of decisions that aren't justifiable under any circumstances. But he had a coherent agenda, and his agenda wasn't a mustache-twisting, two-dimensional villain agenda of "I want to rule the world" or "I, you know, I want to be the Undercity's most powerful crime lord" or anything. Like he had, he had strong reasons for doing the things he did, and all of the characters have strong reasons for making the decisions that they made. The only people that he kills are people that are have betrayed him or are going to betray him. So it's like, it's, uh, it's he hard does, to... <laughs> he curb stomps a teenager because he is angry. <laughs> I oh. just watched the episode where uh, they're down in like the the under under city where all of the like shimmer junkies live and Vi and Kate have just beaten him in a fight. And uh, one of his like shimmer zombies is lying there underneath a fallen piece of water tower and he just stomps on his head until it explodes. <laughs> Because I'm convinced that 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 shimmer zombie betrayed him at some point. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, and I think but, you're given to understand that he's done plenty of brutal things off screen. Yeah, I mean, yeah, his, yeah, I'm, look I'm not, at his design. <laughs> well, right. I'm not. I'm not going to say that he's. I'm not going to go as far as Zach and say that he's. Uh, you know, like, like super nice or anything. Like, but I mean, like I a, stand, a stand up of, dude. By the end of season. By the end of season one. <laughs> By the end of season one, and I think particularly by the end of season two, I think there's going to be very serious questions about who did the most damage in this situation. You know, was it the the criminals in the Undercity or the ruling class and the, you know, yeah. and, and the council? And it's I think it's not necessarily going to be the criminals in the, in the Undercity who ultimately caused the most devastation. Definitely. And, and I think like one of the things – I mean, this is one of the reasons that I'm so interested to see who survives the apocalypse, um, because two of the characters that you can sort of see could go either way are Mel and Victor. Mm. Um, Vi- Victor was an interesting one because I think it's just down to his character design and possibly the fact that he's named Victor, which sorry to Victor's everywhere. I don't know. It's just like Q's bad guy to me for whatever reason, but I think a lot of it well, was especially just, a scientist named Victor. Yeah, and, and like, his his voice acting with that accent, I'm, I was just like, "Oh, come on, please don't turn into the just the Victor bad guy." But maybe he I won't think be. It, well, but and and so far he hasn't been. So far he's been one of the most consistently sympathetic characters throughout. Because as dire as his own personal situation is, there are corners he's not willing to cut. And and so he's to me he's a very sympathetic character in that way that he he flirts with going over to the dark side. But whenever the tough choices come, he so far has chosen the side of light. Um, But the other one who's I didn't trust from the beginning was Mel. And like Victor, I grew to trust her more as time went on and see her as a more complicated character. But I could still see particularly with and Jace is another one with this sort of apocalyptic impetus coming in from the side because Jace has already demonstrated that he can be knocked off course quite substantially by by a fairly, by by a traumatic nudge, 
I mean, he literally so, kills a kid. <laughs> he well, right. and it changes his whole like he sees he sees the explosion and he decides he has to go badass on everyone. So he changes his mind instantly. Then he ends up killing a kid and he changes his mind instantly again. So he's very nudgeable in terms of having some sort of outside event change his approach and his worldview. Mel and Victor seem less nudgeable. So, but how will they, if they survive, how will they process this and how will it sort of, you know, who will decide this proves we have to go to war versus this proves we have to double down on peace. And you know, what's I, interesting I, I can see about- they break either way. Yeah. And what's interesting about Victor as well is that he is, as far as I can tell, the only character who has managed to bridge the gap between the Undercity and Piltover. He's from the Undercity, and now he's a scholar at the University in Piltover. And mm-hmm. like no one else has that dual identity. People are either from the Undercity or they're they're from Piltover or live in Piltover. And Victor is like, which side is he going to choose if this turns into a war? Exactly. Exactly. And I think the Heimerdinger story arc is going to consist of him coming more around to Jace's point of view through being, through seeing more of what's going on in the undercity. And then, yeah, anyway, we could speculate, but I, but I think it speaks volumes of the complexity of these characters that you can speculate that they could make different decisions that are wholly in line with who they are. Since you mentioned uh, Victor, I mean, I, I, overall, I thought this show was great. I have very few, sort of notes. But uh, one thing was that, you know, there's this scene where what what convinces Victor that his experiments are too dangerous is that his lab assistant who has a crush on him gets uh, incinerated by his experiment. And I I think that character had had, had maybe one previous scene where they had, mm-hmm. that had made any sort of impression on me. And uh, I thought that, you know, so when she dies, my reaction was split between horror and like, wait, who was that again? Um... So I, I felt like maybe that character, either that character should have been developed a little bit more or some character that we, kind of going back to Zach's point, some 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 character we cared about more uh, should have been incinerated um, for that moment to have the impact that, um, yeah, that it might have had. Yeah, I, I think they, it was probably just one of those ones where um, they didn't feel like they had the, the space, the screen time to devote to it. But I agree always, you know, if, those dramatic moments land much more poignantly if you have some sort of investment in the character. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zach, anything else uh, you wanted to talk about? Uh, yeah, I was thinking that it was just so dense. Like, it it could use a little bit more, um, like a scene like that there, or like I was saying with um, with Jace going into being a security guard instead of a scientist, which is... Again, I still think a crazy stretch, but um, I I don't normally want more episodes of a show. I, I normally am like, please less, please no more. But um, they're so they're so dense at any moment. There's so many arcs that have just ended and are and are starting a new arc or yeah, that cyclical nature of like moving into power or or and now I'm in power and now I'm doing the same thing as my you know the person in charge before me um I don't know I just I high high praise it's hard for me to say oh well if you just tweak this 
a little bit here. Maybe, maybe that I would have, that would have been the moment that I started getting bored uh, if they started throwing in a lot more scenes. But for someone who doesn't have a lot of time anymore to watch shows, this was just like every, every episode was hitting, like just balancing a lot of, of, you know, thing. I mean, this is like three seasons or it's kind of like two and a half seasons of, of what would be in, you know, 20 episodes. It does in nine. Um, yeah. Yeah. How about, how about Lara? Anything else you've been wanting to, to get in here? Yeah. So I think my biggest quibble with this show, I feel like when the first time I watched it and now on the rewatch, I'm like, this show is a show that is like 85% of the way to being exquisite. And then the remaining 15% is composed of like, <laughs> like maximum drama. Like some of the scenes feel like the people who are writing them were like, what's the most dramatic thing that could happen in the scene, regardless <laughs> of all other scenes that have come before uh, either like maximum drama or just completely bonkers choices, which I think like makes it, I, there are moments when I feel like really, really frustrated watching it um, because I'm like, really, that's the choice you made or like, that's the dialogue. And could, I you, think, could you give an example? Okay, yes. Example. So in episode three, um, when uh, all of the terrible stuff has happened and all of the children have died on screen and Vi has like abandoned her baby sister, who's probably like eight years old in the middle of like flaming wreckage after like smacking her in the face and being like, you're a jinx and you ruin everything. Uh, obviously the eight-year-old is like really devastated because she's just killed her entire family and except for her sister who hates her. And she's like crying. Um, and she's had this really traumatic interaction with her sister. And then Silco, the crime lord, shows up and he's like, I mean, he doesn't say like bummer that your sister's dead. He's like, where's your sister? And Powder says, uh, she's not my sister anymore. Key to this scene, if I were rewriting it, key to this scene is the fact that Silco and Vander, who call each other brothers, who have been friends for a long time, uh, and then had this like horrible betrayal in their past. Like Silco has just killed Vander and Vander's dead body is on the ground behind powder. And he's like, little girl, where's your sister? And she's like, she's not my sister anymore. And you know what Silco says? He says, it's okay. And I was like, this is a moment when you could actually have like a really pithy piece of dialogue sort of summing up the relationship of like a sibling who has betrayed you. Uh, and, and it's almost like there's like a shape of an exquisite show and it's 85% colored in. And then there were bits where they were sort of like, I don't know, uh, we have to get this to production. <laughs> Wait, do you, do you, do you have a bit of pithy dialogue or you just, <laughs> or you can sort of imagine. Given, given like, you know, a word document and maybe like three minutes, I could probably come up with one, but it feels no, like it she's was- dead. Just say that. No, she's dead. <laughs> no, she's like, dead. The dead, you know, guy that's the dead brother, right? No, she's dead. I don't know. Something. Uh, but it, it just feels like sometimes the characters will open their mouths and and things will come out that just seem bonkers. Uh, it's almost like so. I know that TV shows have a gazillion writers, and I looked on Wikipedia. There are eight credited writers for the nine episodes, and I know that they probably brought in like punch up writers, and they're probably uncredited people. Just like a lot of TV shows. They work to uh, homogenize the style across episodes, across scenes, across like one character. You know, they're always going to talk the same way. 
And it feels a little like um, they really just had a million people working on this, filling in little bits of dialogue or like making choices about what was going to happen that feel so like, like you just want to keep watching, waiting for one of those like absolutely amazing bits. And then also there are these bits that make you want to tear your hair out. Well, one thing that made me want to tear my hair out was the music. The pop yep. music. Yeah. Like, ah, what yep. are we doing? Like, I'm so in the scene. I'm so loving the animation. And it's like, oh, here's some like song that I recognize in a world that's like so alien and like, yeah, I don't know. They were I just very I hit and miss on that. that. There were a couple of scenes where I thought they used music so effectively and a couple of scenes where it was so fingernails on a chalkboard. Like when yeah. Imagine Dragons I'm, shows up yeah. as oh an animated band in the show. I was so angry at that. Like it, as it really someone wasn't who hates good. pop music, it's like, I can, can I not get and away from I this garbage? I also hate pop star cameos. <laughs> they drive me crazy. I, just, I thought it was I just, amazing. I in don't need way. Ed Sheeran in Game of Thrones. I don't need it. <laughs> 100%. Yeah, it was very for- fourth wall breaking. But then like some like the was at the end of episode three when they had the like the goodbye goodbye song. I thought that was fantastic. Yeah. So there, like I said, I think I agree. I think there were a couple of episodes where they used music really effectively. But you yeah, know, welcome to the playground has become like a song that is on repeat in my house after this show because it's so badass. If if you watch actually the documentary again that I mentioned, um, the the guy who's the showrunner, his name is Christian Link. He was actually in a band before, like he was in a band and toured all over Europe and played in front of 100,000 people and stuff like that. And then he became like a customer support person at uh, Riot Games, then kind of worked his way up from there to showrunner of this show. But he, so he's really into music and maybe, you know, and like was so excited to like recruit a lot of his favorite musicians to write stuff for the show and stuff. And maybe, you know, potentially went a little overboard, but the... The love of music. Because all the songs, like, you know, in most shows, it would be songs, you know, they would just pick songs from different albums or whatever and put them in. And all the music in this was written specifically for the for the TV show. So Even the theme song? You know. I did wonder about the Imagine Dragons song. Because that went on to be a I, radio hit. And I wasn't sure whether, like, what was the chicken and what was the egg on that one? I don't, I'm not 100% sure that one specifically, but the way they described it was like, all the songs were written for the show. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, a, a couple of them were, uh, I liked enough that I, I uh, shazammed them during the show. And every time I did that, it said from Arcane League of Legends. So <laughs> to yeah, there's me, a, that's there's insane a that, that like you would hear a song in a show in the middle of a show and be like, I need to like, that is, <laughs> I feel like that is not, the vibe a show should go for it shouldn't be like look we need to have music so catchy that someone's gonna pause the show and say i need to download this new pop song it's, mm, like, mm, it's not that maybe it's catchy it was- sorry I, it's not i mean look that that is done oh i don't I, think it's cat like, yeah, like the, the cw the cw has like a whole business model of like pitch where people you know have their sappy romantic indie pop sold through a, a an episode of Riverdale or whatever. Um, but that's not kind of what I'm talking about. They're not necessarily songs that um, I would necessarily listen to from like, it's a catchy point of view, but it's more to me. I want to identify the artist. 
um, because they're creating a mood that I would like to experience later. It doesn't, it doesn't rip me out of the story on the contrary. And I think that's the difference between a good music choice and a bad music choice. Um, the ones that drive me crazy, like I could go on all day about the bad music in the, the Lord of the Rings show. Um, because it's just, it's like telling you how to feel in that moment. It intrudes instead of supporting. And I just think there were moments in this show where the music intrudes and moments where it supports. All right. So be- before we run out of time, I, I, I want to talk about the finale. So, um, so, so in the finale, basically Jinx, the, the younger sister who's become sort of a, uh, Harley Quinn esque sort of force of chaos and, you know, madness. Uh, she kidnaps Silco, the crime lord, her older sister, Violet, and Violet's, uh, girlfriend, sort of, uh, yeah, what would be the word? Like potential girlfriend her or girlfriend? Crush? In, in, her her romantic interest. Yeah. Uh, love interest. And basically um, ha- has them all tied up at this table and uh, is basically, there's a, a chair that says Jinx and a chair that says Powder, which was her name before she became Jinx, the criminal. And is basically confronting Violet about, you know, what chair she should sit in. Um, so I'm just curious what, what people's um, response to that whole climactic movement of the story was so so lara what did you what did you think of that whole that whole how how the season ended um i mean the first time i watched it i was like i'm purely watching this for uh for silco the crime lord um which is not true there are a lot of other things that are interesting in the show but he's so particularly the kind of character that i love that i was like man i didn't even want to watch the second season if they're gonna make one because like the best part of the show is now dead uh but but I don't know. I mean, having done this podcast, now I'm like, hmm, perhaps there are some compelling elements that may carry forward into season two. Uh, but but that was my big takeaway. Ha- ha- having just... done having done this podcast, you're like, man, I really wish I'd had time to make it all the way to the end yeah, of the Yeah, I'm like, oh, man, re-watch. I watched this so long ago. I don't <laughs> remember. Uh, I mean, I think I I almost feel like by that point, Jinx is kind of she's already made the choice about what chair she's sitting in. I think if it was if there was a moment where she was going to revert or like not revert, I think she's too far gone to ever go back. But if there was a moment where that rift was like healable, uh, it's in I think it's episode six, it's five or six where the where she and Vi reunite as adults for the first time and. And you can see Powder coming back. She's like, I'm, I was scared. I I thought you hated me. Like, my whole family was dead. Um, and Violet tells her, it's okay. You did what you had to to survive. And there's, like, they're hugging each other. And Jinx is crying. And then Caitlin shows up. And this infuriates me because I'm like, you met Caitlin, like, two seconds ago. And in the last scene, you were having a big fight about how you didn't like each other. And, and Caitlin... Is like, but what about me? And Vi is like, oh, right, sorry. Even seeing that Powder is really distressed that she's with this cop and, and like, cops killed their parents. She's like, oh, yeah, I can explain. It's fine. I'm hanging out with her. Don't worry. And I'm like, 
you you ruined it right now. Like that was the moment that you could have reunited with your sister. And by the time we get to the finale, like it's too late. It's way too late. Uh, I wish I had written. I should have written down Jinx's little monologue there so I could read it. But but she says something like, um, you know, like I wanted to see if you could still love me even though I'm different. Um, you've changed too. And, um, it's actually really beautifully written. I, you know, I, I wish I had, uh, copied it down, but, but Aaron, what did you, what did you make of that whole, uh, season finale? Um, I mean, there were, there were elements of that scene that I didn't love. Uh, one of the things that, uh, I didn't love about the show overall is I thought some of Jinx's mannerisms and scenes were just over the top for me. Um, and I know that they were, trying to convey and did effectively convey, you know, that this incredible um, PTSD that she has uh, about, you know, being responsible for the deaths of, of her adopted family and, um, and, you know, her rejection by Vi and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I do think that they went a little overboard on it sometimes that, that sort of well, I teetered into to cartoonish point, in, to, to that, that that's the character that's the character from the video game so they kind of like had to get up to that you know they, they they created a backstory to explain how the character with that personality comes about so they, they couldn't really change that no yeah I, yeah i get that and i, I i'm not calling for it to, to be changed i'm just saying i think that they went a little bit over the top in certain scenes um in terms of how that was conveyed chiefly through the animation even um, but anyway, it's, it's a quibble. Um, but I did find it a little bit disruptive in that last scene. Um, I do agree that the, the moment for reconciliation was on the bridge. Um, and, and as much as it frustrated me from a, like the point of view of wanting Vi to express herself, um, better, I, I think Vi has established herself as not being really good at the emotional stuff, mm. um, pretty solidly up to that <laughs> point. So the, the fact that she, you know, bungles that encounter is entirely in keeping with her character, I think. So I didn't object to it from a storytelling point of view. Um, I wanted her as a, as a viewer to make a different choice or to, to, to handle it better, but it made perfect sense that she didn't handle it well. But I do agree that the choice of, of Jinx versus powder was already made. Um, but that the very last thing can, can I talk about that, Dave? The very last thing that happens actually, before we get before we we get to that okay. actually, because um, I watched some some commentary on on that choice and the the monologue I was des- describing and stuff, and uh, there's a couple of different interpretations of it. But one that I thought was really interesting is that when Jinx says, "You know, I want to see if you could like, are we still sisters? I want to see if you could love me the way you used to. You've changed too." That basically what she she knows that she's too far gone that she can never go back to being powder and she wants what she wants Vi to say is i still love you regardless of what chair you sit in mm. and Vi doesn't say that mm. she says you you're, you can still be powder you know you can you know you're still powder you and and i'll only love you when, if you're powder i'll only right you know. and and when Vi is so insistent like you can still be powder jinx realizes she can never have Vi's love again and that's when she takes her shark rocket launcher uh up to the up wow. to the roof basically I just I just, wanna, did we have to have a chair with jinx and a chair with powder it was like a little overt don't you think like yeah but jinx I feel is like all scene... about set dressing like every time she's like blows up a bomb or like 
you know, trick someone or whatever. Like it's always elaborate. There's always well, like a trick wire and like painting. Sure. I mean, it feels like that's like what you do in the writer's room. You're like, all right, this is like what we're doing with the character. Like this is like internally what's happening. And then it was just like, no, how about externally? There's actually a physical chair there and she has to choose between which one she was going to sit in. It's like, all right. Um, I, I still really like the, the end, but it just felt like we had so many cool fight scenes where all of that stuff was like internalized and it didn't have to be so on the nose that I was like, all right, well, I guess we are going to be completely on the nose for this one scene here. I don't know. I, I, I'm with Lara on this one. I, I, it worked for, like because it's like they're all sitting at a table. I don't know. Yeah, well, she externalizes everything. Like Jinx has to externalize and turn into a joke everything that is actually really serious she's, to her. I mean, she's got dummies of her dead friends sitting yeah. at the table. Um, <laughs> you know, if you want to talk about on the nose, <laughs> she definitely um, externalizes all of her weird internal chatter. I mean, that's that's cool, but that's not really part of a choice or like the character arc that the writers in a writing room are doing. It's like, I feel like when you're writing, you're like, all right, we're going to set this up and the character has to choose between these two options. And usually they're like, not, you know, just the, op- they're, they're not so like blatantly there. You know, they could have, I just would have appreciated framing it in a more actiony or, or a more interesting way that was like, not, you know, the, all Did of the main characters sitting at a table. Yeah. Just not all the main characters sitting at a table. This this show was full of awesome fight scenes. And then there was the climax. There's like, they're sitting at a table and there's no like crazy cool action like we had in every, you know, other uh, character moment where a character like does something crazy or like, ma- you know, kills a kid or whatever. That was like in the middle <laughs> of a crazy fight scene. And then he does that and you're like, fuck. And then this, it was just yeah, like I, everyone's I guess, sitting down, and she's like, "All right, I'm Jinx now. Time to time to nuke the." Then she pulls scene. out a giant machine gun and like shoots everyone. <laughs> I feel like it gets pretty actiony at the and end. Shoots everyone that was like just sitting at a table. Does I, that I, scene I, it's remind a quibble. you? It's a quibble. <laughs> Does that scene remind you? I feel like we've seen that scene before. Somewhere. It reminded me of Alice in Wonderland. A little bit of Alice in Wonderland, but there's also, I feel like there's a, there's another property and I don't even remember if it's a movie or a video game or something where the, the bad guy has all of their enemies around the table at like a fake dinner and is, and you know that nobody's going to survive this fake dinner. Um, Oh, I'm sure it feels like it's probably a trope. The only thing I can think of is like the, any number of dinner party scenes in Hannibal. (laughs) That's what I'm thinking of. Wait, before oh, but it seems like a Batman kind of. Oh, it does, yeah. Uh before we talk about the enormous shark-shaped rocket launcher, I just want to go back to like we were talking about how Jinx is like externalizing a lot of her emotions in these like elaborate set pieces. One of the things I really appreciate and also about her like her sort of over the top sort of PTSD episodes, I really appreciate on my rewatch how sort of the seeds of Jinx and Vi's adult personalities and and issues are present in their childhood characters. Like Vi is clearly already emotionally shut down as like a little kid 
and powder already clearly has like really intense anger issues. Like when she's told stay home, you can't come on this job. She She loses loses it. it. She's like screaming, ugly, crying, like tearing her toys apart. And you're like, this is not normal behavior for a child who's told no. Like, and, and clearly like they're traumatized. Like their parents are killed in this horrible, violent battle. They've been living on the streets, like in this very violent place. Um, And then when they're adults, you can see how it like, twists and changes and manifests and culminates in like Vi being completely unable to make herself emotionally available to her sister and her sister being like a total nut who is like this is all a big joke I'm gonna like have a toy monkey at dinner while I threaten to kill you or like make you kill your girlfriend you know like it's it's a really interesting development from like childhood to adulthood and I think it's like a it's a very canny treatment of the development of reactions to trauma. It's it's really subtle in the first episode. And I was like scratching my head. I was like, babe, what, what if she makes a, a, a bomb that's full of nails and they're just like in a street fight. And then she was going to use this bomb full of nails like on these kids. And I remember thinking like, oh, that that street fight was really intense. But if that bomb had gone off, that would have been like, that would be pretty crazy. Like, that's pretty insane. <laughs> and then, like, it, it doesn't go off. Um, but it is still insane that when she was a kid, like, she was going to blow. Pe- she was trying. <laughs> it wasn't for lack of trying. Like, she was trying to maim people. Well, and she um, very I mean, successfully blew her. people up <laughs> as, yeah, as a eventually, child. <laughs> eventually. But like in that in that very first scene, she's trying to do it. It just doesn't go off and save the day. There, there's a really good YouTube video where it's it's something like a, a a therapist a therapist on powders, something or other, um, talking about exactly what Lara was saying about how about why a powder has that complete emotional breakdown when she's left behind because she's you know her greatest fear is abandonment and. That she feels like if she's not, if, if Vi doesn't see her as tough, that she's going to abandon her. And so then when Vi does say, Powder, you're not ready. Like, I can't stand to lose you. Like, Powder just interprets that as like, she's gone. You know, like, I'm not worth her sticking around for. And so it's not just, you know, she's not taking me on this job, but she's not taking me with with her in life, basically. Um so yeah, I, I thought that was if if people can find that video, it's actually really good. But uh, we we need to start Rock wrapping it. this up. So Aaron, ro- a shark rocket launcher, uh, go shark rocket launcher. I mean, it's it achieves something in that last episode that I think so many finales go for but don't reach, which is you have this incredibly dramatic cliffhanger um, that that promises spectacular violence, um, and you don't know who's going to come out of it alive. But what makes it even more effective is it's not just a question of you sitting there and wondering which of the main characters is going to survive. It's you being acutely aware of the significance of this moment and the significance of the deaths that will ensue in just shattering everyone's lives. Not just the lives of the characters that we've become invested in, but the whole city, both cities. This is the the spark that starts the war. Um, and the And the then that, that extra layer, the cher- cherry on top, is that Jinx is the one who does this. Um, she's just killed Silco, 
her father figure. And the only thing that Silco really wanted out of life was independence <laughs> for the, the nation of Zaun. And he was about to get his wish. The council is in their literal ivory tower voting um, against all odds to grant them this independence. And what Powder has done, what Jinx has done, is literally blow it up. It's just um, like episode it, episode three. It's like it's, everything is about to go right, and she jinxes it. And, and <laughs> just, but it's just like so they've they've managed to do this. It is a very suspenseful, b very significant in a macro sense, and c incredibly poignant in a micro sense for the individual players who are involved. So it's just kudos, like chef's kiss, on that moment. But it seems like Jace and Mel have to survive, right? Or else that's kind of a... I don't know. I'm honestly... I'm like, they could all die. I don't... I really don't know who's going to be left alive I, in season I, two. I, I, I think Jace has to survive for uh, for reasons. Um, but I could totally see it as Mel dies. And that's part of what... Uh, and the brutal irony of her having symbolically and literally rejected her family legacy as she sits there and removes the the ring of her house and her house is like this overseas power that's known for its brutal ruthlessness and her mom wasn't in the room so her mom definitely survives and she's probably going to be cranky about it um, and use this as an opportunity to leverage her position and take over and i can see jace since we've already established that traumatic events <laughs> change his his personality drastically from one minute to the next. Um, I can see him also using Mel's death as the, like the, the thing that turns him to the dark side. So maybe. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right. So um, I think we're going to have to get into some final thoughts here. I guess, is there anything else, any other subjects that anyone wants to touch on quickly before we get into final thoughts? Well, Butterfly cluster bombs were rad. Yeah. <laughs> I would say don't don't look up don't look up anything on this if you want to watch season two because I feel like I have a good grasp of who dies in that scene and who doesn't based off mm. of like who's a champion and who isn't and I kind of wish I hadn't done that because I am very I'm very interested in seeing the next season and I do feel like I <laughs> spoiled a little bit of that for myself by looking at the game lore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably really good advice um, for anybody who hasn't played the game or, or isn't familiar with the game, but is enjoying the show. It's also good advice uh, for for any of these adaptations. I spoiled something for myself on The Last of Us, just, you know, just looking at what I thought was tangential and safe. And then I was like, God damn it. So <laughs> definitely don't do that. I knew there was no way we we're going to avoid talking about the last of us i haven't even watched it and i feel like i know a lot about it already (laughs) well i've watched all the uh like years ago i watched all i've watched all the cutscenes from the game so Mm -hmm. i'm pretty pretty well spoiled already uh all right but we're gonna we'll we'll come back to that in a couple months uh but um but on the subject of arcane let's uh let's get into some final thoughts so Zach, final thoughts on Arcane. Sure. I I guess it's not a perfect show. Like we did dissect things here and there. Um I felt like I was being pretty nitpicky overall, uh, especially episode 3 is so incredible. It sets all the 
uh, characters up to do interesting things. Uh, everyone has a cool arc or an internal arc or like has a foil. Uh, so I feel like it was just really well written from like a character. Like where is anyone, what is any one character thinking in any one scene? And it moves, it changes. It's like completely changes from uh, act to act and, and from uh, episode to episode. So I highly recommend it. And like I said, don't like, you don't have to have any, uh, knowledge of the game in fact less knowledge on the game is even better it doesn't need any of that uh it just works really great as a standalone show and i will be watching season two for sure hmm. oh, cool so vera final thoughts Fortiche, call me <laughs> i'm dead serious um but also I'm so happy that this got made. I'm like astonished that it got made a little bit because there's just nothing else like it extant on television. Like watching it, I was just like, how did they, how did they say, yes, let's do this. Let's do like nine almost hour long animated episodes of, of this show. That's like not for kids. I don't It's just like amazing to me that it got made and I'm so happy it got made and I want them to make more of it and they are making more of it. And I'm a hundred percent going to watch it. Um, and I hope that they do more like when, when they're done with arcane, I would love to see them do more animated TV and movies. Cause they just produce absolutely breathtaking work. Yeah, and again, I really strongly recommend this documentary, uh, Bridging the Rift, because, yeah, there's this whole thing where, you know, they had, I think they had made the first episode or, or so, and then, you know, people at the studio went to Christian, the showrunner, and they're like, this just, this isn't good enough, and they shut everything down for a couple months, and they weren't sure they were ever going to be able to start it up again, because, you know, all the animators might leave and get hired elsewhere and stuff, and, you know, and then, I mean, it all worked out in the end, obviously, but it was this really touch and go, grueling six year long process. Um, and so, yeah, definitely not easy getting a show like this, uh, you know, done. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but then it was like number one on Netflix, like a week after coming out and now has a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes. So like worth it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Aaron, final thoughts. Um, I don't know if, if people listen all the way to the end of the show, if they haven't already watched a program like this, but, um, but if that's the case and you're on the fence about this, absolutely give it a try. I think the first couple of episodes can lull you into a sense that, um, that you've seen these, these plot beats before and that you've seen this story before you haven't. Um, and, and it will surprise you again and again, and the surprises will come fast and thick after that. Um, and I think it's just tremendous that in a show that has as much lasers and, and mayhem as this one has, um, and action sequences and brutal fight sequences and all of this, they make so much time for the quiet moments and for a genuinely character-fueled drama. It's just great television. Yeah, and, and again, definitely watch up to episode three. And if you're not hooked by episode three okay fair enough you can stop watching but don't definitely don't give up on episodes one or two because like aaron's saying uh you know that's just sort of setting things up for the for the big twists to come um and and like zach's saying i mean all my comments also were totally nitpicks i mean you know i think it's totally fair the show has 100 percent on rotten tomatoes and you know i have a couple ideas just to make the show more interesting but (laughs) to make this to make this podcast more interesting but uh (laughs) 
yeah, I, I think it's 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 basically it's 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 really really good. There's there's nothing uh, that I thought was really off about it at all. Um, so yeah, definitely looking forward to season two, and uh, yeah, just looking forward to seeing more of this art style. I just love it. I hope they're able to to do more shows in this style because I just think it's I think it's so cool. It's like like you can just freeze any you know freeze any frame and it looks like a a really good illustration from a Dungeons and Dragons manual or something, you know? So I think it's super cool. Um, all right, but let's uh, wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Zach Chapman, Lara Elena Donnelly, and Aaron Lindsay. So thanks everyone so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Aaron Lindsay, Zach Chapman, and Lara Elena Donnelly for joining us on the show. This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy was made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com slash geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And remember to check out the new novel A Slice of Mars by longtime Geek's Guide to the Galaxy listener Gara Cachet. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.